you That's all right, mama Just any way you do That's all right That's all right That's all right, mama Any way do Well, mama, she done told me Papa done told me too Son, that guy you fooling with She ain't no good for you But that's all right That's all right That's all right, mama Welcome again to the Strange Boo Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was Elvis Presley, and that's all right, way back from 1954. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome John Ilsley here today, famous for Dire Straits, but has got a wonderful solo career, and he's picked a selection of tracks that uh, I guess have got a connection with him. A huge welcome, John. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. It's a pleasure, and um, it's an obvious question, but... uh, you sat there by one of, one of the old wireless radios in those early days, listening to the likes of Elvis. Well, yes, I mean this was our this was our very odd communication with the outside world. My brother and I, I think we were, I don't know, thirteen or fourteen at the time, and he'd built this uh, this tube radio set, a crystal crystal set, and we had headphones not unlike the ones you were wearing, actually, but I think they were probably something from the war that my father brought home. So we had one headpiece each, and uh, this was attached to um, Radio Luxembourg, which, of course, was playing a lot of American music. And so Elvis was on regularly. Buddy Holly was on there, Chuck Berry. So Elvis sort of popped out sort of like a, a genie out of the bottle. You know, everybody was going, what's this all about? You know, and, uh, of course, the whole of that, record that was made at Sun Sessions, I think, was done in a day or something with Scotty Moore and, and Bill Black. Yeah, I mean, that's what turned me on to, you know, trying to get involved in music, really. What age were you when you first heard Elvis and rock and roll? Well, I think I was probably about 13 to 14 because my brother then went off to school and left me alone. So we were doing this together. So it must have been about 19, I don't know, 61, 62, something like that. And the Beatles then emerged very, you know, pretty soon after that, and were playing a lot of those early rock and roll because they were a rock and roll band really when they first started, weren't they? The Beatles. 
that is covering a lot of the stuff that those LPs that were being brought in uh, into the UK. And and uh, if anybody had an LP in those days, of course, it was a bit like having an amplifier. You could join, you could join, <laughs> you could talk to anybody, talk to all your mates. So uh, you know, these were the sort of little threads that were uh, weaving into our lives, I think, and and got us excited about music. And was bass guitar your first instrument? No, not at all. I mean, I I, I basically bled my fingers trying to make a Rossetti Lucky Seven uh, sound okay, which was difficult. But I, I I just literally got a chord book and learned how to play the acoustic in a very rudimentary fashion, and then tried to play along with the tracks that I liked and listened to, and which I because that by then I, I was spending all my pocket money on forty fives and LPs, and if if we could find an LP to buy, it was very expensive, but when I had to save up quite a bit of cash for that. So I, I started on the acoustic. And then in order to um, join the school band, when I was about 15, they said, well, if you want to join the band, you'll have to play the bass. And that was it. My brother built a bass in the woodwork shop, <laughs> which, you believe, which looked a bit like a spade. Uh, and I wish I had it to this day to show you, but I don't have it. And I suddenly found that I was very comfortable playing this instrument, and it, and it just it felt that that was that was me, and uh, although I've continued to play the guitar and I play the piano a little bit as well, but that's really my that's my soul. The bass guitar is really in my soul. I think that's what I have. That's the way I would put it. And the gap to Dire Straits was bigger than you'd think. It, it was it a, at least a decade or so of playing in bands. Yeah. Well, I went and got a proper job for a bit, actually. I, I did actually, as dare I say, work for a living in the traditional sense from sort of 1970 to 1973 when I decided I wanted to go to university, which was quite late in those days, to read sociology because I was getting interested in politics and social issues and stuff like that, which is what you do when you're early, in your early 20s. You suddenly become quite political and, and start thinking about philosophy and well some of us did and so i ended up going to goldsmiths college in south london and um and that's really where you know the band was formed uh, my, uh, my association with david Knopfler, who moved in as a flatmate to help me pay the rent and then subsequently i met mark you know and uh, i don't know these things just happen but in a sense what i'm trying to get across is that sometimes your actions in life make something else happen yeah you know what I mean? And so I wouldn't have met Mark if I hadn't done the day job and then gone to gone to college and then got the flat, met David, you know, blah, blah. this is how things happen in life. You have to put yourself a little bit at risk in order to um, sometimes find out what else is out there for you. I totally agree. And um, was it clear for all three of you that you had a strong passion for music and playing music? I think it was obvious to me pretty quickly that um in mark i I met a quite an extraordinary guitar player at that particular point in time i don't think he would this is 1976 i think when i first met him i don't think he was writing so much as playing he was playing in a sort of rockabilly band in um essex with a mate of his called dave i don't know what dave's second name was i should remember then they were called the cafe racers which and we adopted that name for one gig the very first gig that Dire Straits played. We called ourselves the Cafe Racers, but I, I digress. So meeting Mark was a, a, a sort of seminal moment in, in a sense. And I, you know, when you meet somebody, you realise you are actually going to know this person for a long time. Mm. You just get that feeling. 
I found him very warm, very approachable. We shared the same kinds of music, you know, like Elvis and, you know, Little Feet. And uh, we listened to a lot of reggae then together and, uh, you know, Ry Cooder and, and JJ Kale and stuff like that, you know. So we shared a very common interest in, in, in the musical threads. We'd sort of pretty much grown up side by side, but in different parts of the country. He was up north and I was in the Midlands and then down south. So the fact that we met up was by chance, really. And the, the first track of the first album is Down to the Waterline. How long did it take for the, the Dire Straits sound to become something recognisable when you were playing together? Was it almost instantaneous or did it take a, a number of months to evolve? I think it was it was pretty instantaneous. I think we we sort of fed off the way that Mark played the guitar. So he had this sort of, he, he bashed the bottom strings with his thumb. So he got that, so that's where the downbeat was. And then it was sort of slightly country, slightly rock, slightly him. I, I, I can't really describe it any, in any other way. So when I started playing the bass, I just I just followed his his thumb, you know, and so that's why you get that bounce on the bass, you know, that um, bump, 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 you know, like down to the waterline. And so I thought that that was an example of very early Dire Straits feel. Then, then we've evolved from that, but that was the essence of the sound, which which happened when we all sat down together. And it was quite immediate. And when Pick joined us, he just fell in with that sort of thing. And, and he, he just seemed to fall into this thing as well. So suddenly I thought to myself, actually, we've got a pretty good band here. <laughs> so. I think for me, the early days of Dire Straits is, uh, fits well with the late 70s in, in terms of, you know, it was very different to sort of prog and some of the, the stayed rock and, and at times fit in with pub rock. Yeah. But at the same time, you were... You weren't punk rock, no. so you were still going against a certain element of the prevailing trends. Yeah, we've always done that. Um, trends have come and gone, but um, uh, Dire Straits seemed to have weaved its own path pretty much through the whole musical uh, milieu. So I, I think that we always stuck to our stuck to our own feel and our own sound. It's interesting you say that about that. You know that uh, it, it was the music for the time. I'm not quite sure. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It just seemed to happen at that particular moment, and um, there was because there was. You're right. There was so much other stuff going on. You know, with everybody wanted to take punk bands and get them to play everywhere, and it was a pretty sort of extreme uh, reaction to what had gone on before in the seventies when the punk thing happened, and we sort of emerged out of the middle of all that. But we weren't the only ones not playing punk. There was a whole music scene mm. in the seven, late 70s in the pubs and clubs of, of London and all over the country, which wasn't punk. You know, there were still people, you know, playing music which had was song-based and, you know, uh, rock and roll and, and uh, rhythm and blues and all the rest of it. You know, Graham Parker was around then, Ian Drury, you know, the uh, Rugulator. I mean, all sorts of bands were around dust on the needle was a name that was a great name for a band i loved that i don't know who the hell was in it but it was a great name for a band and i thought it was a great wish we'd had that yeah. um but so there was a lot of things a lot of different things going on everybody thinks that it was punk and nothing else but in fact actually as it turned out we emerged out of this mist if you like and um a few people took some notice which was nice 
Absolutely. And um, our next song is uh, JJ Kale, an artist that you have referenced already in uh, Same yeah. Old Blues. And, and that's uh, obviously one of his key tracks that has been recorded by quite a number of artists. But yeah. maybe it's worth talking about some of those influences for you as, as well as marking that period. Obviously, I, I assume JJ Kale was, was one of those. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, just before Mark, before just before I met Mark, a mate of mine who was I used to play a bit of guitar with on the on the on this council estate where we lived. I was up at his place one day and he said, "Have you take a listen to this?" And he put same old blues on, and I'd never heard JJ before that JJ before this, and I just went, "Oh my god, what's that all about?" And I love the simplicity of it, the feel of it, and I thought that really I really love that. And I went out and bought the album Oki, I think it was, and and then subsequently I bought every single thing JJ's ever done because I love his approach. I love the simplicity of his approach, and it's about the song. It's about the his feel was just amazing. And and then when I met Mark, I was talking to him. I said, "You know JJ?" And he said, "Yeah, of course I know JJ." <laughs> and so suddenly it was like, oh, you know, as if you know, of course everybody knows JJ. Well, of course I didn't until then, but. So that you know that we, we and we we enjoyed listening to that together as well. So that's that started a, a big love affair for me with uh, with his music. And uh, it was a very sad day when he passed away. I was very upset. Absolutely. Mm. There's a number of people that that cite JJ Kell and Bob Dylan putting the two together as being two of the key influences for Dire Straits. Do you, do you think that that's Accurate. Well, who said that? Who said that? <laughs> well, if it's written on the internet, obviously. Oh, right. Well, that that must be right then. No, the 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 thing is, Jason. I mean, you, you know, you listen. You obviously listen to a lot of music, and uh, we were listening to lots of different types of music. I'd I'd played lots of different types of music. I'd played, I'd played uh, rock and roll. I'd played blues. I'd played yeah. a bit of country with some people. I joined a, a band at college when I was there, playing, you know, like cream music and stuff. So you know you you feed off everything you hear, and I think in, some of it filters in more into your senses, and some less. So you, then you end up with a sort of a, a rather mixed bag of influences in your head, which sort of creep out from time to time. And I think that's probably with most people, we are essentially a product of everything that we've experienced before, and so it's it's going to come out in the music somehow. You know, I've always, I, I mean, for instance, the way I play the bass, as you as you probably know, I use as few notes as possible <laughs> because, yeah. so, in order to leave a bit of space there. And, you know, so I was always listening to bass players, how they approached a song and how they left the space so other things could go on. So, you know, that's how I developed my style. Not out of laziness, I can assure you. It just felt right for the song. And when I was playing with Mark, it felt right for the songs that he was writing. And um, I still approach music in the same way now. Yeah. Just keep it as simple as possible, to be honest. Yes, I heard the news, it's the same old blues again 
talking about how you were playing now we have it's a long way back from your new album eight and um it's got your sound it's got a dire straits feel in terms of uh, your new album is that an album that was recorded during the pandemic period or were you laying the foundations before that no it was actually started during the pandemic uh, at home because we couldn't go anywhere or do anything so for me it was it was kind of a it was a good period. I mean, I, a lot of people had terrible times, but for me, there were no interruptions. So I was able to get on with putting together that wonderful jigsaw puzzle that seems to be every album that I do is a big jigsaw puzzle of ideas and thoughts and musical bits and pieces. And my son, Harry, had come down from London before the pandemic started. And I had to cancel a tour halfway through, and we were up in, you know, halfway through a tour. And so we all, we all came home and Harry brought his uh, recording equipment with him because he does a bit of DJing and makes music of his own. So I just started sitting down with him for an hour a day, just playing around with all the ideas I had. So that was the first time that my son and I had actually worked together on music. And he has a very different you know, approach to music. His, his, his music is computerized. He uses all sorts of sounds, different sounds, different rhythms. And I just sat there with an acoustic guitar and I said, just record this with a little drum beat. And so we built we built the the first bits of the album to get together, which for me was a great pleasure. And I think he enjoyed it too because he was working on something which was out of his comfort zone, where he had to really think about how to put a song together. And I was showing him how a song gets put together. And then I moved on to my son-in-law who lived down the road, who's got a much more sophisticated studio. Worked a bit with him, and then I went to my keyboard players place when we were allowed to you know when covid restrictions were lifted a bit so it was a bit of a weird one to make but um i mean the trick track that i've chosen long way back really is a, is a reflection of 
the time when the band first went to um to LA and played in the Roxy and met Bob Dylan and all that kind of stuff. That's what it's all about. That the, the initial feeling of suddenly when we got to America uh in 78, there was a lot of noise going on about the band there. We were number four, the single was number four in the charts, and I think the album got up to number two or something ridiculous. And we just arrived there. So there was a hullabaloo, to put it mildly, about the band. And so playing at the Roxy, I mean, we could have probably played at Madison Square Garden, but we weren't ready for that. We were just a four-piece band from, from South London, you know. And uh, so we, um, you know, we went to play the Roxy and, you know, everybody was anybody was there because it was the big, it was a hot ticket. So Stevie Nicks was there and Rod Stewart and Governor Jerry Brown and, Oh my God! I don't know. I can't remember. And and of course Bob was there, and he invited us up to his hotel room to and played us some songs after the gig, which was fairly surreal, I have to say. So in that in that song, long way back, I'm trying to reflect on that extraordinary moment and realization that suddenly Dire Straits was becoming a bit more than we ever thought it would become. So everything got very kind of exciting, rather rapidly, <laughs> to put it mildly. You have to learn a lot very quickly when you when success hits you quite hard. And you have such a, a vivid and, and detailed autobiography that captures those times. Did that come into your music a little bit, re- recalling back some of those memories, or are they just always omnipresent? Well, the book was kind of a separate thing, really, and I started that before lockdown, just putting the ideas together and sketching out you know, all the different time frames and such. Like I had to produce, I had to sort of approach it in a way which would make sense chronologically, I think. But also, I really just wanted to try and explain to people who maybe know a little bit about the band or just about how rock bands work, actually the, 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 the way they actually, actually manage to keep going and also continually creating new music and new sounds and new ideas and the extraordinary amount of touring we did. So... In a sense, it was trying to paint a picture for people about what it was like being in what turned out to be an extremely uh, successful band. And being part of that was obviously an incredible pleasure for me. I mean, it was uh, it was a remarkable experience. I can't really, it's difficult to put it into words. So that's why I tried to put it into words in the book and explain it to other people what it felt like to come from a middle-class family in the middle of Leicestershire and end up in this sort of rather phenomenal uh, situation. You you couldn't you couldn't have written it down really, but I, so I tried to write it down and make some sense of it. And it took quite a while, but I was very pleased with the results. And I had a good deal of help from a chap called Neil Edworthy, who was a who was very good at synthesizing what I was writing and what I was saying. So we did this thing together, but we managed to keep the whole feel of my voice and what it felt like. But I think with things like this, you know, you need some help or else I'd probably still be writing it now. You know, somebody who can structure things and knows how to put something together. So I'm deeply indebted to Neil for spending the time doing that. Uh, and, and and we had a great time together, to be honest. I mean, the great thing about him is that he didn't know anything about music. All right. <laughs> he had no idea. So he learned a lot very quickly, let me tell you.
talking before about you know coming from a, a middle class background from Leicestershire yeah in that early period you've got that shift to London on on that first die straits album is um Wild West End which I, yeah. I assume was Max capturing the Soho West End life at, at the time yeah what was it like in in that period in in the West End well I don't think it was quite as hairy as the 1950s in in Soho which were pretty extreme with with Francis Bacon and the and the like we used to go up there quite a lot, mostly to Denmark Street, uh, to go and have a look in the guitar shops. We couldn't afford anything, of course, at the time. And we used to go to the same Italian restaurant, uh, the Barocco Bar, you know, just on Old Crompton Street and down to Angelucci's to get the coffee. And so it was all about that. And I think we actually went into a strip club once, and that was the, that's the reason why there's that the dancing girls bits in there. And, of course, you ate, we ate in Chinatown. So it was all, for me, it was a wonderful memory of um hanging out together as mates just wandering around in the wild west end and um he produced this song very soon after our friendship started and um it really, really captured a sort of it felt very personal and very um 
uh, warm to me the fact that I, you know, I'd been a part of that that sort of moment that he'd managed to capture in song. He's a great observer, Mark, of of everyday life. I mean, I think that, and down to the waterline, for instance, is an observation of when he was growing up in Newcastle. So he's a great songsmith and still is, you know, he's a a consummate songwriter. And I think that as, you know, I think most people recognise him as being something pretty special. Yes, I saw. 
So as we move over to communicate, yeah. it's once upon a time in the West. Is that a way of linking uh, the West End again, but obviously with a fronting it with a, a Wild West side of it? Well, do you know, I'm not sure about that. If I'm honest, I think it's probably a re- from. I think he watched he watched the film Once Upon a Time in the West. There was a film out at that particular point in time, and then he sort of conjured up this idea of the British version of that. Uh, and so, if you if you hear if you listen to the lyrics of that song, it's very it's a very British thing. You know, Sunday drivers who never took a test once upon a time in the West, things like that. And of course, it to me, it was a reflection of the fact that we were listening to quite a lot of reggae at the time. Yeah. And uh, so there's a there's, there's a song after this, which I, I put in there by Third World. We were listening to him them a lot and Blackheart Man and stuff. And, you know, so and obviously Bob Marley. So we were, you know, reggae was always going to be a little bit of a, element in the music because i think you know in the fence in the gallery from the first album that's that's got a bit of a reggae feel to it as well you know i was mucking about on on the bass one day and he said oh you know that song i wrote in the back of the car on the way back from the west end the other day in the gallery he said i think that bass line might go with this so you know things like that were emerging all the time and although it felt completely natural at the time it was very relevant really to how the music turned out so once upon a time in the West was kind of a little bit of a, another reggae experiment in a sense, you know, but that, that song, I don't know, we've listened to communicate recently. I, somebody wrote to me the other day and said, I can't believe that version of once upon a time in the West on communicate. Cause it was really driving hard. And the bass was really thrashing through it, pushing this thing along, which was nothing like the original. And it just shows you when you start playing a song live on stage, it does change a bit. For that album, you didn't stay in, in London, you actually went to Nassau? Well, yes, I, I think it's because Jerry Wexler, who produced the album, wanted to record it at um, Compass Point Studios in Nassau because uh, the Talking Heads had worked there and I think the police had worked there. and So it was, it, was, it was Chris Blackwell's studio and a lot of reggae had come out of that. So uh, we ended up going, well, yeah, let's go to Nassau. I mean, we'd, never, we'd never been on a plumbing plane before, <laughs> you know. And Jerry hired this ridiculous house for us all to stay in. And we were still living in the Blooming Council flat, don't forget, at this particular point. So we ended up going to the Caribbean, staying in this ridiculous house, which, of course, it all went on our bill, yeah. as it turned out. <laughs> and we we made the album at Compass Point Studios, which was great. We didn't take any amplifiers with us. We took, took a few guitars because we knew we could hire it from this place in Miami 
which sent amplifiers over to Compass Point Street on a regular basis. So we get there, and the and the, the amplifiers hadn't arrived. Nothing at all had arrived at the studio. So we had to go to a local reggae band and borrow a, a blown-out sort of bass amp and some a, a speaker and a one Fender Twin reverb that somebody had got. I think we might have borrowed something from Robert Robert Palmer, who lived across the road. He might have lent us an amp as well. So we, we literally made the whole of Communique on two old amplifiers, which is crazy when you think about it, because I think it sounds great. But... And these and this equipment just didn't arrive week after week. We'd say, "Where is it?" And anyway, a different girl got on the desk at some particular point, and we literally almost finished the record. And and we just thought, well, we just said to her casually one day, "Those amplifiers never arrived." And she said, "They've been here for three weeks. They're just around the corner in the in in, in the studio." And we and nobody had told us. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I think there was probably a bit of smoking going on, which was probably changing people's perspective. I don't know. but <laughs> So we made the whole album on these beaten up old amplifiers and nobody knew. It's who's playing the equipment. It's not just the equipment, obviously. I think that's probably a very nice point to make. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great time making that record, I've got to say. I mean, uh, there was a certain amount of rum being uh, consumed uh, in the evenings and we ate very well. And... Uh, you know, it was a pretty laid back experience. And it's one of my favorite albums, actually. I really, I think it captures yeah. the straits at a, a at a particularly particular time. Things like Where Do You Think You're Going and yeah. Portobello Bell, lovely, lovely things.
And to a band and style of music that, that keeps coming up here today. So clearly a theme, we've got 1865 and the, the wonderful 1960 degrees in the shade. And no. so you were saying that that was a key track and a, a key group that you were listening to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just love reggae. I love, I, I don't like all reggae. I just like, I like reggae with great songs, you know, and I think that's where Bob Marley cut it through and Third World did I mean, I've listened to uh, 96 Degrees in the Shade now since 1976, probably at least once a month. <laughs> wow. It just reminds me of, it's such a cool song. I mean, it's such a cool song. You know, it's just it, it's just what was floating around in the flat at the time. You know, you, you feed off these influences, whether you like it or not, you know. It's a great storytelling track. Yeah. It tells history and in a different way. Yeah. The storytelling element came out in Dire Straits as well. Yes, I mean, I think well, I think writing songs is is a is a form of story, isn't it? And uh, unfortunately, I think in a sense, modern music. I'm not saying this as an actual generalization, but seems to have lost the idea of crafting a good song. I mean, it's just a, yeah. which I think is a bit disappointing. And the record companies probably hold some responsibility for that for allowing a rather mediocre sort of standard to be achieved. And that's why you're not getting you're not getting really exciting music you know which have got got a bit of an edge to it now it's all been smoothed out you know there's no there's no you know there's lumps and bumps anymore which we all used to get off on but like chuck berry and dylan you know saying things that he shouldn't say and 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 neil neil young doing things and, and leonard sort of leonard cohen writing the most extraordinary sort of mm. ideas and and, and um, images doesn't happen anymore. It's all I love you, you love me. No, you don't. Yes, you do. And it's like, and in a, in a different form, blah 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 blah. And it's, I, I just get a bit tired of it, to be frank. If if I'm honest, I just think that people should be a bit more adventurous. And I think record companies should also be a bit more adventurous. I mean, the band, the Straits, were always pushing the boundaries of songwriting and uh, music and uh, atmosphere. 
you know, not just in the in touring, but also in all the records, you know, and we always tried to do that. Didn't have to force ourselves to do it. It just seemed to come naturally somehow. Just experimenting with different things and different ideas and not, not being satisfied until you found the solution, you know. That's the remarkable thing about Dire Straits is that um, although there is a quintessential Dire Straits sound, each album still has got its very distinct identity. So you've, that's quite a, a balance to get there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, the record company almost freaked out when we gave them Love of a Gold just with five tracks on on a 14-minute 14-minute version, you know, Telegraph Road. I didn't quite know what to do with that. But anyway, they got over it. So record companies are very, are very sort of um, flexible when it comes to agreeing to do things. If you're successful, you can get away with just pretty much what you want. If you're not, you get pushed around by record companies, basically. It's as simple as that. So in order to not stop not to get pushed around by record companies, you've got to be successful. Yeah. And then you can say, no, we're not doing that. We're going to do it this way. We're really sorry, but that's the way it is. In the shade, real hot. Oh yes, in the shade. Thank you. 
those successful albums kept coming next with making movies and uh, one of the great songs on there is yeah. Tunnel of Love which is another of Mark's stories yeah. from I think going back to his, his time was it Whitley Bay? Whitley Bay yeah 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 Whitley Bay which I went to once uh, not with him but with somebody else actually just to take a look at it yeah reflections of childhood and also this album, of course, was the first time that we really had had uh, got got to grips with keyboards. Up until then, we'd, we'd kept it pretty simple. And Roy Batan from Bruce Springsteen's band came and, because uh, Jimmy Iovine was producing that record, and then he'd just done an album with Bruce. And I think that, um, you know, he said, he said, if you want a good keyboard player, then I, I suggest you use Roy. So Roy came in, and of course, as soon as he started playing, we just sort of big smiles on everybody's face, you know. Oh, here now we go. Now we're going somewhere with, with this thing, you know. And it was a wonderful experience. I mean, that really made a big difference to the way that. And I think Mark was wanted to move forward really in a more orchestral sort of, more expansive kind of music. And so I'm very very fond of that record. Well, I'm a funny fond fond of all of them actually, but for different reasons. And Tunnel of Love, I think, was. Yeah, I still love playing that today. Actually, I really love playing that song. It's one I, it's one I always come back to. If I, I just love the energy in it, and and the, and also the dynamics that you know the. Um, I've got a great keyboard player in my band called Steve Smith, and so I know somebody who can, he can play it. He can play it properly, you know, which not many people can. And also, a drummer, drummers find the straights music quite interesting to play. You've got a great drummer who can handle it as well. So the, the you know. It's a great song. It's a great song. Brings back a lot of memories, you know. People may not think about it now, but those were the days when artists, not only the great quality of music, but it was almost an album a year, really. (laughs) You must have been on one hell of a a schedule, you know, recording, releasing, touring. It mustn't have stopped in, in that period. No, well, it didn't. I mean, it was quite interesting when I was doing the book, when I looked back and just to check, you know, just to see what we'd been up to. I thought, oh my God, did we did we really do all that? I mean, it's completely bonkers. I mean, if we weren't recording, we were touring, and if we weren't doing that, we were rehearsing something else. It was literally nonstop. I think the only time we had a bit of a break was after the Love Over Gold tour, and I got time to make my first solo album, was never told a soul, and um, also to actually go out and buy a house somewhere rather than the only time we actually had a chance to go and find somewhere to live. I mean, it sounds absurd, but we didn't have the time. Literally didn't have the time. You know, so it was, it was, yeah, it was hectic. I was, I would say, I used the word hectic on a hectic on, on steroids, you know, but we were, we were young, we were fit and we were having a fantastic time. I mean, there was nothing not to like about it. Let me tell you.
about the six blades, sing about the switchback and a torture tattoo. And I've been writing on a ghost train where the cars they scream and slam. And I don't know where I'll be tonight, but I'd always tell you where I am in a screaming.
into these carousels in the carnival arcade Searching everywhere from steeplechase to palisades In any shooting gallery where promises are made To walk away, walk away Walk away, walk away From color coats and Whitley Bay Out to walk away And girl, it looks so pretty to me Like it always did Like the Spanish city to me When we were kids Girl, it looked so pretty to me Like it always did Like the Spanish city to me When I So next we have another brilliant reggae track. We have Peter Tosh and you know a radical reinvention of Johnny Be Good, which works equally yeah. well to the uh, Chuck Berry original. I'd never heard this before. <laughs> you haven't? Oh my god! Wow, it, it's a wow fact. A big it, wow. Fact. You wouldn't think to remake it, but it it works equally as well. Oh my god! I mean, it's so brilliantly produced as well, and I can't remember who produced it. I should read, but no, I mean. I'll tell you where I first heard that. I mean, I'm slightly jumping the gun a bit on these tracks, but we were actually in Montserrat recording Brothers in Arms. And every Saturday night in Montserrat, in Plymouth, the, the little town, there was a sort of a, a disco. Well, not in the strictest sense of the word disco, like we think, but yeah. it's basically where all the islanders came, young and old, and played all their music. And incredibly loud and we used to take saturday night off and go down to this disco and 
Peter Tosh playing Johnny Be Good came on, and I thought, what the hell is that? <laughs> and <laughs> so I was on the dance floor just saying, play that one again, play that one again, and fell in love with it straight away. I mean, I, I just, it's just, a, I think it's fantastic. So that's the memory for me is actually we were in the middle of, you know, Brothers in Arms doing that. So I had to pop that in because that's sort of, it's a sort of, uh, a seminal moment, I think, in a realizing that perhaps I'm not such a bad dancer after all. But every time, my and my daughter now, who's 23, she loves it and she plays it all the time in the house. So we we hear it quite often. Um, yeah, Die Straight shared the bill with Peter Tosh in 1979. Did you get much contact with other acts on on those sort of festivals or? Was it a case of in and out in the period? I think, was that the Torhout and, Ve- and Vector Festivals in Belgium, was it? Is that right? I think the police were on as well. Pink Pop, Netherlands. Oh, Pink yeah, Pop. And it was with the police, yeah. yeah. Yes. I unfortunately didn't get, to, didn't get to meet them. I mean, you often don't, but sometimes you do. And I think we, we used to share dressing rooms with, with the police. Uh, so we got to know them quite well. Yeah, we did a lot of those. There weren't many festivals around at that time, actually. They were mostly in Germany or in the Netherlands or in Belgium. And there was a handful of them. So we pretty much did all of them. And nearly always the police were on with us. I think there was one where Bob Marley was on. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember that it was quite funny, that <laughs> seeing the Bob Marley tour bus in the morning setting off with clouds of smoke already coming out <laughs> of the windows. <laughs> I mean, it was like... Whoa, what a way to start the day. Anyway, that's for another book. <laughs> yeah, it was great doing those festivals. You know, you because you, you you get such a variety of people. I mean, it's got a bit, I mean, they, they really formed the basis of a lot of stuff that was going on now, really. Yeah, we had a lot of fun on those things. We had a lot of fun. Post 
And we have uh, next one of your tracks, one of your tracks, uh, railway tracks from your 2014 album, Testing the Water. And for me, that one of the key lyrical lines, life doesn't run on railway tracks, it twists and turns, it's not white or black. And that's a great metaphor for life, isn't it? Shades of grey, yeah. things will go off on a, a right angle. Yeah. Is that how you feel that your life has gone? Well, I'll just give you a little bit of background. I was in hospital uh, in 2011, uh, recovering from um, leukemia. And I wrote quite a few of the songs for that album, Testing the Water, actually in the hospital, because I, I insisted on taking my guitar in with me while I was having all the chemotherapy and the stem cell transplant. Not that I was feeling particularly great at the time. I was feeling pretty damn ill, actually. But I managed to sort of come up with a few ideas for the album Testing the Water. And Railway Tracks is really a reflection of being in hospital. Uh, if you look at the lyrics, there's a lot of references to, well, life, you know, generally speaking, life sometimes, sometimes comes and creeps up on you and changes things completely. So that's why it was important to me to put that one in, because it was a seminal moment on actually surviving. A lot of people who go through that, the stem cell transplant thing with leukemia don't survive. So 2011, I've been 11 years clear. So I'm sort of, I'm sort of out of danger. So, so I've been given a new lease of life. So in a sense, railway tracks was a reflection on that particular moment in my life. Life doesn't run on railway tracks. It does. It twists and turns. It's not white and black. And I was in this in this situation where I didn't know whether I was going to come out of it alive. I, had no, I didn't know. And as you can see, uh, I did. And <laughs> to fight another day. So I thought I'd put that in. I could have chosen quite a few other things from that album. But I think, you know, people, life doesn't go the, uh, as smoothly as you'd like a lot of the time. We'd love it to. But unfortunately, it's not like that. As we can see, what's happening at the moment, you know, there's a there's absolute chaos in some parts of the world, which we're not going to get into right now. But yeah, just shows you things can change overnight into a nightmare. Absolutely. Yeah. So you released a pair of solo albums in the eighties. Obviously, there was that period where Dire Straits had, had split and then got back together, and then you had this yeah. huge world tour. But you had at least a decade and a half gap where. I don't think you were recording or releasing that much music. Were you painting and just having a break at the time? Well, I, I you know, when when Mark and I decided to uh, to bring the Straits to a halt after on every street, I don't. I think we found that we probably couldn't do any more than that. It was a massive tour. We thought we'd taken it as far as we could, and I completely appreciated the fact that Mark was going off in maybe a slightly different musical direction, and he'd had enough of really that that, that all that big stuff. It was just too much noise as far as he was concerned. And I, I completely understood that. And I, I was exhausted. I just wanted to, I just wanted to get out of things for a while and, and uh, do something different. And I, I'd always painted since I was about 14 or 15 years old. I, it ran side by side with music, actually. So I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to do the other thing in your life, which you really love. And I love paintings and I love painting myself. And so I literally immersed myself in uh, in the studio art studio and it took me about eight or nine years to actually get a gallery to say uh, we'll put a show on and then i was off and i did i did quite a few solo shows in london new york france sydney all over the shop 
And so, I, I, you know, and I really loved doing that. And then I got back into music again with those Irish madmen. <laughs> My liver couldn't stand too much of that, as you can possibly imagine. <laughs> and um, had a great time, went to Ireland, and well, I took them to France and they, we made that. We made a live album together in this place in France called Live in Les Beaux. Then I'd, I'd had enough of it of that. So, and then I started writing, and then I and then I produced Streets of Heaven, which was the first one after the other two you talk about. And then Streets of Heaven led into Testing the Water, and then Long Shadows, and you know, coming up for air. Now we're here with um, Number Eight, which is eighth solo album, which seems extraordinary, really. Um, Every two years or so, I seem to put the jigsaw puzzle together and something comes out. So the, the muse is not leaving you. You still, there's still no, ideas and inspiration that's still flooding out. Yeah, I think, I think it's, I, I, I'm not under any pressure. I don't pressure myself to, to go in and write something every day. I probably play an instrument every day in one form or another. If I'm in the art studio, I put, I put the brushes down for a bit and sit at the piano and just as a, for a break, really, and something might come out of that. I'm not. I'm not under any pressure. My I don't put any pressure on myself. Although, having said that, the last time since the books come out and the, the albums come out, I've been so busy talking to people. And um, I mean, the book's been very well received, which is a great pleasure. Yes. And uh, this album seems to be going down very well as well, which I'm very happy about because, you know, it's it's good to get feedback. I mean. Every artist needs feedback, whether you're painting or whether you're making music or whether you're writing poetry. You need people to respond to what you're doing. It's a very natural thing to need. Some people say they don't need it. I don't believe them. <laughs> Picasso said once, you know, if you're not getting feedback from people, what's the point? Of, you know, there's no point in doing it because that's what you're trying to communicate with people. You know, and I, I try and communicate in a few different ways, you know, with music and with art.
just a fantastic story you're telling here, John. And we're closing with Brothers in Arms, which covers a universal message, really, which is very apt for today. And uh, yeah, sadly, sad, yeah, very, very sadly. And uh, I guess that's why your music and Die Straits music won't ever go away. There'll always be someone discovering those songs and and them resonating with people, either from a sort of worldwide or personal level. Yes, I mean, I, I think in a, in a sense, one is always surprised, quite naturally surprised at the effect that music has on people. And a song like Brothers in Arms, of course, carries a, a, a continual universal message, which is obvious to anybody who listens to it. And it seems to be relevant now as it was when it was first written, you know. And I think, I think it was possibly... I don't know exactly why he wrote that song. Uh, some people say it was a response from the from the Falklands War. I don't know. I, d- I don't know, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't dream of putting words into Mark's mouth. But the fact of the matter is, it's a song that stood the test of time. And if I was to pick any one song from the the Dire Straits uh, catalogue, I'd have to say it would be Brothers in Arms. And um, you know, that's it, really. And that's difficult because there's so many other great songs that are on the records and uh, you could choose a lot. But I think one that seems to have resonance, universal resonance, is, is that song. And then just to close, your your spring 2022 UK tour is very imminent. Yeah. What do people, should they expect with, with that show? Well, there's only one way to find out. <laughs> <laughs> it's storytelling again. It's storytelling of, you know, in a sense, a little bit the things that were in the book, but it's also, um, it's really opening up the idea of of what music means to people and how the Dire Straits approached it. And so we, we t- I talk a bit with my one of my ex-managers, Paul Cummins, who knows more about uh, me than I do, I think. So we chat away and then we play some music uh, uh, acoustically. We play it pretty much acoustically with an electric piano and I think Robbie Mackey is playing an electric guitar most of the time, but so there's no drums. And we say the take, we take the songs down to their simple form, which in a sense was the way they were kind of written. And the first time that when we sat in a room together and played them, that's what they sounded like. And it's, so it's a very, and it makes the songs for me come alive again. And it seems that the audience really likes the, the way that we handle, we handle it. And I did a, really most a lot of these dates were ones that we couldn't complete because of the lockdown. We had to stop the tour halfway through. So basically, I'm fulfilling the some of those dates and we're adding in some other ones just to fill in the gaps a bit. So it makes it sort of two weeks, which is a very, very short tour. But two weeks is just right for me these days. Will it be a case of um, more ideas and potentially looking for album number nine? Uh, I think we'd better wait for that. There might, might be a little time. I'm going to take. I am going to take a little bit of time off. I've been so busy. I'm looking forward to um, looking forward to getting back in the painting studio and making a mess of things again. I mean, what I what excites me about painting is that what I attempt to do is is try and surprise myself, if that makes any sense. Most of the time, I don't. But when I do, I get great satisfaction out of that, and I have no idea where it comes from, but. I just push myself along and try and do something interesting. 
John, it's been a huge pleasure to talk to you and I wish you all the best with your forthcoming tour. And uh, I've heard the album and it's fantastic. So um, thank you very much. Thank you. Heartily recommend everyone getting a ticket for the shows and getting eight as well. So thank you. Jason, it's a pleasure. Nice to meet you. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. Another time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now.
Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.